heroesandhorses.org. Hey, welcome. <laughs> I hate yelling, hey. Welcome to the Mankind Podcast, though. My name is Justin J. Girdler, and I am the host of the show. Uh, we have taken a couple weeks off just coming into the new year, and man, I, I missed it. I genuinely did. But it was so good for me, one, to just get some time with my family, catching up and getting them kind of ready for this new year ahead of us. Uh, and also just to get my guests ready. Um, we got some incredible guys coming up, and I'm really thankful for the men who've said yes. Um, today is one of those men, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Ben Sledge, uh, who's not just a personal friend of mine, but somebody I have um, just gotten to really watch as his story has unfolded for years. And you're going to get to dive into that story because it is such a powerful one. As we go through this, there might be things that I would encourage you to be thinking about in your own life, whether you are a veteran or know a veteran. I think what really comes through in this is that we all are dealing with something. And so as we go through this, uh, I think it'd be awesome for us to be thinking about our own health. How are we doing? Kind of do that little, you know, check on our, our pulse. Man, what am I bearing down deep? And how can I grow from that? Uh, is my... Is the stuff I'm not dealing with coming out sideways. And so uh, as we go through this, it's going to be an awesome story, but I also hope it's an awesome lesson for you on all the things that kindness and genuine relationships with others uh, can bring into our life. So without me talking anymore, um, we're going to dive into it. Mankind Podcast, a podcast committed to helping and highlighting men who are making the world a better place in three ways. Uh, we are having a space to talk about mental fortitude and emotional intelligence by identifying the tools that break down silos and fight against polarization and by creating a community of stories. Hearing from men on the front lines of kindness, whether in leadership roles or working quietly unnoticed in the shadows. If you believe kindness can make a difference in the world, but don't know where to start, then welcome to the Mankind Podcast with me, your host, Justin J. Girdler. Awesome. Okay. Um, well, I'm really excited about today. I have on the show a really good buddy of mine, Ben Sledge. We've known each other 12 years yeah, for eons. It's for eons. Short, shortly after I got to Austin, after I got home from Iraq. We met at that point. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, through through some mutual friends. Yeah, uh, I think it was Josh. Yeah, Josh Reebok. I love that guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we've stayed in touch and been able to hang out a number of times, but you have, uh, you've moved away. Uh, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about what, what you do. Uh, you're an author, graphic designer, a veteran. I mean, you, you have like all this stuff that is really all over the place in some ways. And yet somehow you have made it one cohesive, like brand and who you are. You have a new book coming out <laughs> called, uh, yeah. where cowards go to die. Uh, that's just mm -hmm. about your story and what, honestly, what a lot of people go through, a lot of men go through, uh, women too, uh, as they move from, uh, a combat military background into, kind of their next chapter of life. Is that a fair way to put it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The book, just to give a quick synopsis, basically takes you from 
my time growing up in the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, and then on into, and I, I kind of pulp fiction it where it's like you start out in Afghanistan, then you're in the 1980s, then you're back in Afghanistan, 1990s. So you kind of get these like decade snippets of my life that way you have that backstory, but it ultimately encompasses like my journey through war and where I ended up deriving, you know, purpose, meaning and direction. And I, and eventually volunteering for another combat tour and then the struggle to come home to a country that no longer feels like home. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I think one of the things that I wanted to do specifically was I meet with so many veterans now that feel like we're not necessarily represented in a lot of the literature or the movies that are coming out because they're, you know, and this is not a knock against these guys. It's just been the people who've been getting book deals and movie, you know, uh, exposés or whatever we want movie, movie deals. And they um, it's usually about a Navy SEAL, um, you know, in some major heroic action or they're a sniper and they shot everybody and they, it doesn't necessarily deal with the, the, complexity, the barbarity and the humanity that is involved in war and combat. And so you have like an entire generation because you, you have to realize like that's that's like maybe 0.2% of the military. So you have the rest of the military going, well, what about us? And uh, and I wanted to write that true to their experience. So um, and, and give them something to look at and then also encompass my own journey of faith because I was like, basically by the time I was in Afghanistan, I was just like, nothing matters. We're all just barbarians. Hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> that is not the guy I've known you to be. You've always been. <laughs> um, in some ways, like you do this really cool, uh, wear your heart on your sleeve and yet you're very disciplined. Like you're, you're not like a, some people say like a bleeding artist, like you, you are a bleeding artist yeah. in some ways, but you're also very disciplined. And I think that's some of your background. I was just curious kind of what, maybe even before signing up for the military, just kind of what was your upbringing? Like who, what made you, who you were leading up to that point where we're all barbarians? Yeah. So I was always the artsy kid. Um, and, and we'll get into this later, but uh, I, I found that, uh, later on in life, I, I read this Renaissance icon named Benito Cellini, who said that a well-rounded man is a, a warrior, an artist, and a philosopher. Hmm. And I was like, man, I love that. That's that's true. Like there's there's this balance. And in times past, we called it, you know, the Renaissance man or polymaths. And uh, but growing up, for me, I was I was fully embracing the, uh, the artsy side. I was, I was the creative through and through. Like by the time I was three, I had like a pen or a crayon in my hand. I was drawing in- incessantly. And so when I got to like high school and I was very shy at the time uh, and my parents had to work with me a lot because I would just stare at the ground instead of talking to people. Um, and they said I would walk around like a dinosaur half the time too. So I looked really weird with just like kind of my hands, like, you know, stomp. It, it, it's just this weird kid, you know? Um, but that also will attract bullies, uh, unfortunately. And uh, by the time I was like in sixth grade, you know, I had found music as a creative outlet. And during like the height of like the ni- late 1980s and the beginning of 1990s, you had the rise of, you know, metal going mainstream with like Metallica, Pantera, Sepultura. You had like Amon Marth, which was like a, a Viking uh, metal subgenre. 
And then you had the rise of like pop and, and gangster rap, like NWA, Bone Thugs and Harmony, you know, Ice Cube, uh, Tupac comes out. And so there's this, there's this big push that we see. And then the grunge craze kicks in with Nirvana and Soundgarden and everything. And while I liked, you know, some of the rap and stuff, cause it was cool. And, and that's what people listen to. I got really involved into like the metal genre because the guitars and everything just really spoke to me and the complex and, and the lyrics too had this deep impactful meanings as far as like struggles that people were facing. And as like the creative art kid, you know, I was like, yes, I love this stuff. But you know, when you grow up in the buckle of Bible belt and I grew up in Oklahoma uh, during that time period where it was very much like, uh footloose like the old footloose with kevin bacon i know this is totally dating dating me but this is the 1980s right so like uh it was like don't drink don't dance like don't have premarital sex and and like don't listen to metal my god don't listen to metal (laughs) guns and roses is evil and man i remember when i the first time i heard you know uh paradise city and same thing for like motley Crue. i was like these are my people yeah and uh and that man, I got, you get picked on when you're like the goth metal skater kid, um, who's into like the grunge and alternative lifestyle. You didn't and, have a, you didn't have necessarily a tribe yet. Like those tribes hadn't no. really developed. They, they were starting to develop, you know, you, we were, it was, you could always kind of spot your own. It was the guys who dressed in the black or were in band t-shirts, or we were kind of the original hipsters wearing, you know, the, we, the Goodwill shirts and the ironic, like Curious George. Like I remember yeah. I, I had a Curious George and just like stuff that was like very niche. And so, we, you know, you kind of banded together, but most of them were all like potheads too. So you were getting additionally, like, even if you weren't like kind of this, like, oh, they're drug addicts. They're, you know, they skateboard, they wear these chain wallets, they were Jinko jeans and they were <laughs> black and they're just awful and they they worship the devil and i mean there were so many stigmas attached to it yeah and um you know when you grow up in a, a church environment and you have that and you're so you're one you're artsy you love art like loved anime and stuff like that uh and then two you know you're the the metal kid it's it, dude just vultures left and right and mm. uh and so for me, I got beat up a lot and that made me want to get into martial arts. Cause I, I watched the karate kid, you know, <laughs> you were Danielson. <laughs> yeah. And now that Cobra Kai's back, like my, my inner eighties nerd, I'm just like, this is the best thing ever. So, uh, but yeah, so I, I got involved in martial arts and I had to do like a Christian martial arts version because Eastern mysticism was so wrong and evil. And I was going to get possessed by the devil if I didn't sprinkle <laughs> some Jesus dust on it, you know. Um, <laughs> and so I, I ended up getting to karate, but I was still very shy, very had a very tough time. But, you know, my family history is one of of, um, you know, very long military lineage. So it was something I knew that I always kind of wanted to do. And my grandmother's traced our lineage as far back as like a Napoleon or a general under Napoleon. So, I mean, we've been in forever. Uh, you know, my, my grandfather was a paratrooper in World War II with the 82nd Airborne. Uh, my great, and then my other grandfather, he served in um, uh, just in Fort Bliss during World War II. But my great uncle, his brother, stormed the beaches in the Pacific 
And then we had wow. everybody who was in like World War One. My grandmother's, uh, her dad was in World War One. Um, and then, I mean, it just, it just goes back and back and back and back. It's like the sledges are just like warriors. Weird, warriors, yeah. It's and it runs in the blood, and it's super strange, and I don't understand it. Hmm. But it's just kind of that thing. But I was still this artsy kid, you know, who's trying to figure out like what all of this looks like, and eventually. Um, you know, I'm getting I get beat up and I, and when, when that happens and you, you develop like these core wounds and, and my core wound and the message was, was that I was never enough because of who I was, because who I was, wasn't acceptable to other people. Mm. And so overnight, like I had long hair, like down to my shoulders and I'm dressing in like, you know, all this, like I said, the, the, the shirts and everything of the time overnight, I tell my mom, I say, Hey, I want to get a haircut. And uh, we need to go shopping. And uh, I literally become like totally changed my appearance. I went from shoulder length hair to short frosted blonde tips because like that's like late nineties yeah. when like Mark McGrath's coming out, you know, with yeah. like Sugar Ray. It was like he's a pimp, so I should probably be like that dude. And uh, and then <laughs> and then I started shopping at like Abercrombie and Fitch, and suddenly I'm like getting invited to like cool kid crowds. Mm. which was confusing because I mean, teenagers are superficial and fickle like that. And eventually I, I realized I didn't really fit in with them. And I, I found a group of friends that I really like and enjoy. And I'm still friends with to this day. And we were just kind of this weird eclectic blend. It was like, man, we were totally into metal and like we would go to concerts and mosh and like, you know, throw our hands up in the sign of the horns and, and all that. But, you know, we just kind of dressed like the average kid during the time. And uh, by the time I was uh, 17, I realized like, you know, it's, it's, it's my time to serve my country. And a lot of that had to do with money for college. Cause my, my parents were, I would say lower middle class, you know, they've lived in the same house for, since I was a kid and they're still there, you know, and they're retired and um, just in a very small suburb of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and just lived very modest lives and gave us a really good upbringing. It's very leave, leave it to Beaver in like a lot of ways. Um, and then, so I don't, I don't remember Beaver joining a yeah going, going to metal concerts. Metal, but, yeah, but he would have. He yeah, totally. But would I mean, have. as far as like family oriented, totally. had loving parents. Like I didn't have the background where kids are like you know my parents were neglectful. And like, we're, my parents and I were still super close. My dad and mom have been huge influences on my life. Um, and you know, we're, we're super tight, but, um, I think that sheltered environment was really kind of set me up for failure in the end. Mm. Um, because by the time I got to, to war, it was this whole other thing, but 17, um, I was like, Christian church is a sham. It's all full of fake people. And I don't want to be involved in this. So uh, I just didn't tell anybody because when you live in like the buckle of Bible belt, like it's if you're like, hey, man, I'm having doubts about my faith or you're just like, I'm, I don't know about this. Like people are like, you're going to burn for eternity. Satan's going to torture your butthole. You know, you're <laughs> just like, oh, thanks. Like, yeah, I guess I should definitely come to faith now kind of thing. Oh, that, that, that was a convincing argument. Yeah. Your argument is so convincing. Like, yeah. Burn for eternity or not. Mm. <laughs> so, um, and, and I was involved in like a church where the, the pastor was like embezzling funds, like sleeping with the secretary. They're on drugs. Yeah. Like it is, it is a mess, man. So I was like, like, 
And, and I think in some ways things don't haven't changed. They've just taken new iterations of what's happened in the past. But um, so when I was 17, I was like, I got to get out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. This place sucks. And like, that's for those of you that are listening from Tulsa, Tulsa, a great place. Like, but you know, hometown, like environment, I was just like, I gotta get out of here. So the army was like kind of really this big escape, but all, and you know, there's family lineage, but my, um, my parents, you know, they can pay for me to go to college and they're like, but you're going to go to college. Cause we both went to college and that's what you do. And I was like, oh, how do we pay for this? They're like, I don't know, figure it out, join the military. I was like, okay. And so I started like looking around, but they wanted me to be like a mail clerk and like <laughs> these really lame jobs. And they were like, look, why don't you do army reserves? And then you can, you know, it's your one weekend a month. It helps pay for college. You'll get the tuition and all that other stuff. And I was like, cool. So my scores were like super high. And uh, so they originally recruited me for like, military intelligence and other stuff and like uh you know collecting it's called human it's like where you interrogate or stuff but i looked and this this is so funny because it's it's so stupid that it was so stupid of me in the past i was like man this sounds really cool um but i looked at like how long i would be gone and i had to go to language school and it was like forever and i was like and they're like look you're like one of the few people qualifying for this and you know your skills and and i was like no and then they're like well, we have this special operations thing and i was like ooh that sounds cool you know special operations in the army reserves and i was like what do you do and they're like oh, you work with like the local indigenous populations recently we've been doing you know bosnia herzegovina stuff and um, you know, it's, it's kind of like that where you're going to, you know, uh, meet people, you'll gather information, but you're, you know, winning hearts and minds and, and, uh, but, you know, very diplomatic and you have these skill sets and specialties that you learn. And I was like, that sounds cool. I could totally do that. Not knowing anything really about it. And so like, I go to, to MEPS, which is where you enter the military and like, you know, my parents are thinking I'm going to be a male character for everything. And I come out, I'm like, I joined the special operations unit. <laughs> so, and they were pissed. <laughs> so, like, you're supposed to go in, you're supposed to go in and do mail clerk. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh, do you like, do you like the mail clerk? I was just like, oh, dude. So it's, uh, it, it is crazy, man. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how like, I, you know, my artsy background moved into, um, you know, kind of the military too. It's just family history and way to pay for college. Uh, and then from there, everything got crazy. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I can keep going with that story, but I don't, I, that's, that's the background that you asked for. I don't want to jump too far ahead. Yeah. Um, I already hear, I mean, what's kind of amazing is, and I know this is kind of where we're even driving toward in, in a lot of ways is I hear a lot of things about like just high level of awareness of your identity. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like even the whole conversation with the mail clerk thing and special ops and language school, like there's this level of like, I'm very aware of the person I want to, I am becoming, or I'm growing into, and you may not have always had the language around it, but you were seeking that, that, in some ways community, but you were really seeking out things that were affirming this, this, yes, that's who I want to become. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that was the tough part too, because in other ways I caved to culture and I wasn't who I was, I was meant to be, you know, sure. like, 
I mean, it's a um, cur- it's in some ways it's like a current, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's constantly moving. We wade into the river and and got to figure it out so from there. Weird too, because like in the last, I would say, ten years, I really moved back over to fully embracing you know that creative metalhead. Um, and I'm like not ashamed about like all the stuff that I listen to, and like some of it, you know, like people are like that is dark and i'm like oh, i love it you know and because it's, it's like people screaming and like just like and and i'm like back in black you know and i'm wearing and what's funny is now i get compliments because they're like man i really like the way that you dress and your style and i was like this is just me being my metal kid inside and and i it made me realize like what a travesty that i spent all of my 20s and and you know, or some of my thirties trying to be who other people said I should be Hmm. because of those core wounds that I had as a kid where people were like, you're a skate faggot, you're the art fag, you know? Um, and, and just like, you know, really just homophobic slurs, the whole thing just towards me. Uh, and that, that began defining so much of my identity. And I was like, well, I can't be these things. I have to be who everybody else wants me to be. And like, that's, that's the message that so many men, I think, get, uh, throughout their lives. It's like, I, the person that I am is unacceptable to society or my family or friends at a whole. So I'm going to wear this mask and this facade, whatever this, you know, version of masculinity is that is ambiguous and nebulous and kind of weird, um, and I don't fully understand, I guess I'll do that. And it's going to focus around aggression or, and, you know, never showing my feelings or, or whatever it is. And that, that was effectively what I bought into like everyone mm. else. How did that look in your twenties and thirties? I want to go back to the military, but yeah. Um, but, but just speaking to your twenties and thirties, whether it was military career or not trying to be something else, how did that play out in your life? And what we're kind of like, there might be some people going through that right now. And they may feel, again, you're kind of caught up in a current of like, I don't, I get, no, this is who I am. And then it should realize like you've put something else away. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not until you kind of get out of the river that you realize like, man, I, I got swept downstream from where I wanted to be. Well, I was, I think the tough thing is, is I was always still the art kid. The thing that I had done is I just kind of trapped him in a box in my heart. And I was like, that dude's got to die. Like his, mm-hmm. the, not- the sensitive guy that cares about people like I can't have any of that. And some of that really was the military just because of the discipline and everything. And when you go to combat war, there's this aggression and you have, you have to have it to survive. Like you will not survive if you are not in, in some ways an absolute animal, you need to be a dangerous man. Like the, this kinder gentler army is kind of ridiculous to me because I'm like, there's no softness in war. Like there's, it's just not like that doesn't exist. You're killing people. You know, you can't be like, let's shoot flowers out of a gun. <laughs> you know, it's not going to work or sing Kumbaya. Like they're yeah. going to kill you first and you have to decide, am I going to live or am I going to die? And that's a hard spot to be in because there's another human being across the barrel, you know, and ultimately you decide what type of person am I? Am I a type of person that kills another human being? Mm. Yeah. Now, and I want to um, say for our listeners who don't know this, you've, you've been in combat, you have been shot mm-hmm. at and had to shoot back. Like, yeah. There's footage of it. I've, I've had the privilege of getting to see of yeah. I mean, you right in the middle of firefights, yeah. which yeah. is just insane. I can't, I think there's a, 
I love that we do this podcast on kindness and I love getting to bring veterans on like you on and I'm looking forward to getting some more on because I think you guys have a incredibly unique perspective on humanity in general because you guys have seen some of the worst of it. Oh yeah. And I know there's the worst of humanity by far. Sure. And, and, and yet you've got to come out of it and try to understand you guys are fighting for something that most people can't wrap their heads around, whether it's democracy or, you know, new opportunities for countries. Like there's something that you guys have done and you guys experience, like, I mean, you guys have like, you were saying before, like so many veterans who come to you and say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do life out of the military because, because some of those identity pieces, they can't figure out who they're supposed to be. You mentioned earlier, we were talking before we started recording the warrior and poet yeah, side of things. And I, I thought it would be cool for you to share because we're, we're going into these pieces of like the kinder, like you have to put that artist away and lock him up. But what's the healthy version that, that should have been, you could have striven for in the military, out of the military, like, things you've come to understand looking back. Yeah. It, it goes back to that, you know, the well-rounded man thing, warrior, artist, philosopher, you know, it's a deep thinker, it's creative, but also it's saying it's the person who's not afraid to fight for things that they believe in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and in so many ways, I, I wrote this article forever ago and like the whole toxic masculinity thing came out and it went like stupid viral and just got picked up by everyone. And it was called today's problem with masculinity. Isn't what you think. Uh, it was on medium and uh, they pimped it out everywhere. And the, the premise was, is that basically, you know, most of us grew up with these father wounds Um and if you look at like kind of the fatherlessness in, in America, it's, it's, it's an endemic issue uh, that is continually. It's, it's either kids grow up in a home without a father figure present. So it's the mom who takes care of them, or they have dads that are home, but emotionally and mentally, they're just checked out, you know? And like, that's why you see like all these, <laughs> it's kind of the cliche of like the spoiled brat who has everything, but that doesn't have like their dad's love, you know? Mm. And there's actually a study on this that John Hopkins University did where they studied like, like these major issues like uh, suicide ideation, malignant tumors, like basically all the worst stuff you can imagine to see if there's any correlation between them. What they discovered after 30 years of study was that a lack of closeness to the parents, especially the father, was the predicator for any of those, those sicknesses and illness, mental health issues. Whoa. Yeah. That blew me away. And I was like, I was like, man, John Hopkins bringing the thunder, you know, um, that's, that's and, science. Yeah. I was like, just science y'all. Uh, so w- within that, the, the thing is, is most men grow up because of that father wound emulating whatever their friends do. And it becomes Lord of the flies, you know, mm. uh, you're in, in that environment and you're just like, who gets the comp shell? Who's the alpha male? And then that guy goes and he might have a toxic dad at home. So it's like, well, let's talk about football and, and, you know, chicks. And that's like kind of the the thing. And then people like me who are the artists, the musicians, the creatives, you know, uh, they can get ostracized by that overbearing father at home, 
or a toxic father who's like, oh, that stuff, you know, oh, well, you listen to that devil music or why are you such a weenie or whatever it is. And within each man, um, I believe there's a warrior and a poet, you know, and it, no matter who you are, you're going to lean more one way. Um, and for me, I, I kind of vacillate between the two because I've, I've just always been that person. Sometimes I'm more of the warrior. Other times I'm more of the poet, you know, and, um, you know, just not to, to get into, I think this is just such a great example, but not to get into like, you know, biblical themes or anything of that. I, I mean, faith is important in my life, but, you know, I want to be respectful of your listeners. But if you look at like King David and everybody knows David, as far as like from, you know, David and Bathsheba saga, that's a dude who was like emulated both really well. Like cause dude played a harp. I'm like, I'm never going to play a harp. Like even for me, I'm like, mm, that's a little much of a stretch. Like I don't write poetry either, but I have friends who do, you know, that, that write really beautiful thing. And if we think about it, poetry in so many ways is a lot of the lyrics to songs we listen to. It's, it's mm. literally poetry. Yeah. It's just set to music. Yeah. And then, um, you know, writing and showing our emotions and, and, uh, and not in like weird ways, but like in ways that actually matter, like not being afraid to hug another man and like, you know, show affection and, and closeness and all, and all of that. Th those are just good hallmarks of masculinity anyway. Um, but you, you may be more sensitive, like that's yeah. okay. Like there's nothing wrong with that. But then there are those of us who are geared more towards the warrior lifestyle where it's like, man, I, I find purpose and suffering with other people. Um, I find, you know, meaning in protecting, like we, men are very, you know, very much, we, we have this innate desire to protect and provide, like, I don't care who you are, like ask any husband who's the breadwinner, what it's like and losing your job. That's just, it's crushing in, in yeah. so many ways because you feel that pressure and it's a pressure we put on ourselves. So inside every minute, I think there's, there's both, you know, and there's, there's tinges of the warrior, tinges of the poet, and you can kind of walk both between those lines. And the problem is, is we are snuffing one for the other a lot of times. And, mm -hmm. uh, and because of that, we're learning from like our friends, it's this Lord of the flies environment. And then society is like, what is wrong with men? And I'm like, well, we, where's our role models that we have to look up to. Yeah. Um, and that becomes extremely problematic. So, yeah. So, so in some ways we're, we're allowing guys who have the conch shell in some ways, like I said, turns Lord mm -hmm. of the flies who are going to toxic versions that we've seen in the past, because I mean, and, and even why we're doing this podcast is like, when we yeah. talk about kindness, it's kind of like, eh, that's a sissy word. You know, kindness, that's for, that's for pansies and. But that's feminine, not feminine true dudes. historically, not. because if you look at the Stoics, they yeah. had their virtues and temperance and compassion. This is yeah. just another, I think it's even a deeper word for kindness were the hallmarks of, mm. of that movement and that environment. And it was emotional regulation too, not letting like your anger get the best of you to lash out at other people. So yeah. for people who are like, Oh, it's such a, I'm like, no, it's like a very manly historical virtue that, yeah. that we need to embrace. Yeah. And I think so many men today, like you said, we struggle with that because we don't know how to express ourselves because we just bottle it up. It comes out super sideways. Um, you know, we take the things that frustrate us or anger us. And like, I mean, the guy who, who loses his job, but he can't go to anybody to talk about it. You know, the guy who like, he, he's up for a promotion, but he's, he's getting ignored or the guy who can't, 
he doesn't feel emotionally connected to anyone, maybe even his spouse or his best friends, if he's, you know, whatever it is, doesn't have anywhere to go. And so, I mean, to what you're saying, like it's leading to tumors, it's leading to suicidal tendencies. It's like, we're seeing it all over culture, which is why I think this podcast is so important. And ones like it, I mean, there's other guys doing amazing work like this for men because we're not processing. Like it, there's kind of this, like, what'd you call it? There's a superstorm, right? Of guys who are just struggling to f- launch their lives. I'm taking that I think directly. most of us are, lo- are lonely too. Like you look at a lot of the guys, they have the dudes that they watch the game with. And like, for me, you know, I have the same thing. Like there are dudes that I love just, you know, catching up with, grabbing a drink, go to the sports bar, whatever it is, watching the game. Like I'm all about that. But where are the deep connections? Like you're not going to bond over just like, you know, watching sports every week. Like, yeah. Talking about, you know the about their life, like what they're struggling with, like, how's their marriage going? You know, how are their kids? How are, how's their single life going? Their dating life, like all of that. And we we're so good at like everything being skin deep and like glossing over those details. Cause we just don't want to appear weak. Yeah. And yet like vulnerability is like the most courageous thing you could possibly do. And it's just, it's, so we stay lonely and we just don't talk about like, you know, what's eating us from the inside out. And we don't develop those bonds that we need with other men, like through that, those connection points. So and that's, I think that's beautiful right there. I hope, I hope a lot of guys really heard that you had, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go back a little bit, but going back to the guy who was like, we're all barbarians. You came home. This is what I want to get to. What you just described, how did you learn that? Because that wasn't you in the military. You came out and had to experience it. But if you kind of walk us through like... Yeah, let me walk you your, through yeah. the military and then how I got there. Because that's like, that's a huge part because... So when I was, let's see, I was 20, I think, or so. I, I'd finished up uh, basic training at Fort Benning. Uh, uh, school of infantry there uh, had, <clears throat> so I did that. And that was like when it was all male. So I, it was just dudes. And then um, I was on like this delayed entry program and then nine 11 hit man. Mm-hmm. And on September 25th, 2001, I was on a flight to Fort Bragg, North Carolina to go to uh, special warfare indoctrination and training for my, my specialty school. And I did so well there. This is the ironic part that I, you know, I foreshadowed was they were like, yo, you can get a language slot. <laughs> and originally I was like, I'm not going to do this because it's, it's going to take too long. So I ended up getting a language slot and, you know, the war on terror had just kicked off. So we were, they hadn't shuffled commands and like the USI of Sauron wasn't fully on, you know, the Middle East. Um, and Southeast Asia, because Afghanistan's technically Southeast Asia. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, uh, we we were still under what's called Southcom, so we were we were running missions in like Belize, Dominica, Colombia, because the FARC was a big deal there, you know. Um, and so they gave me a choice of like Spanish, French, or Portuguese, and I was like, I'll go for Spanish. That's going to help me out in the long run. And so. This is, this is how crazy everything gets like literally. So September 25th, uh, I'm on a flight to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I come home right, you know, before Christmas, I'm on terminal leave. I get off of that in January. So, um, I'm home for 
uh, three months. They're like, Hey, by the way, so you're going to language school. I was like, okay. So I like left in May and then gone again for like six months, but I walked out fluent in Spanish, which was dope. Um, and it got me way ahead in college because for like that six months, you get like 45 college credit hours. They transfer oh, anywhere because wow. it's the most premier language institute in the world. And plus I was living in like Monterey, California. So it was gorgeous. Um, so I, I get done from language school and same thing, Christmas, January, you know, January. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to knock out a semester of college because I've been on active duty for like, you know, forever now. Um and so I go, I go to start my semester of college and you know, everyone's like, where the hell have you been? I'm like, sorry, like special warfare school, language training, you know, like all this. <laughs> and um, so I start this, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, yeah, semester of college. And, um, and right when I got back, like my whole unit's like, we're going to Iraq. So I knew we were going to Iraq early on. And I was like, crap. And so I, for a while, I thought we we're just going to stage in like Kuwait and do a show force kind of thing. And that's what I, I figured they were doing. And uh, I'm on spring break. It's, it's March. I've been home for, you know, basically like two months now. And I'm there with my brother, who's also in the army and is a, a combat medic. And we're, we're in South Padre Island and we're just partying it up, you know, having the time of our lives doing whatever. And the military has put out like, so the Marines and the army are there. The army has a rock climbing wall on the beach and stuff. And then they've got their TVs out there. You know, everybody's still on high alert because, you know, 9-11 is still fresh in the American populace's mind because it's, you know, it's early 2003. We didn't start ground operations till October of 01. So, you know, it's like a year and a half. And all of a sudden, like chance of USA just go roiling over the, 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 the beach. And I'm like, what is going on? And somebody's like, it's like that scene in um, Starship Troopers. They're like, it's war. We're going to war. That dude oh, wow. who's like yelling and yeah. they're all running. Um, and it's, it, it was like that. It's like, we've invaded Iraq. And I'm like, oh no. Uh, I was like, I'm gone. <laughs> you're, you're getting called up. I'm getting called up. And I'm like, so I go over to the army recruiting command thing right there. And I'm looking at it and, uh, and you know, this dude is like, I think you got what it takes, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, no, <laughs> and I leave, you know, and normally I have this sense of pride, like, Oh, I'm already a soldier or whatever. And I sit on this rock for a while. Um, and then I go up to my, my room and I, I just watch the invasion, the rest of spring break. And I only had like two days, a day or two left. Everybody else goes to the bar. And for me, I'm just like, I know it's coming. I get home three days later, I get the call. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to Iraq. And they're like, no, you're going to Afghanistan. And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, and um, <clears throat> anyway, to, to, to just cut everything down, I ended up in Afghanistan and I was, I was really afraid. Uh, and I tried to get out of the deployment in some ways. I was like, I would kind of like sabotage stuff or make comments or whatever. <clears throat> and um, eventually my team sergeant sits me down and we're, we're in Kandahar and we're, I find out we're going to the border where it's like most dangerous. And we're going to this place called Rocket City, which is called, or its real name is Organi. It's like on the border with Pakistan. And then there's another fire base we alternate between called Shkin, which is literally on the border. You can like see into Pakistan from it. And uh, 
you know, it's bad out there. It's the wild west. Um, and he sits me down and he's like, dude, I know, I know you're afraid, but we need you. And he just took this like real dad tone with me. And he's like, we're tomorrow. We're going to get on that chopper and we're all going to be afraid, but we're all going to come home together. And so I went out there and I discovered, I actually really liked combat. Um, I felt like such a profound sense of like purpose and Mm. it was simple. Um, you know, I, it was scary, but you get to this point where you just, and I don't know how this happens, but you just get okay with dying. Um, you just kind of make your peace with death and you're like every day you just kind of wake up and you're like, well, I'm not dead today. So I guess let's just keep breathing kind of thing. And you just, you, you kind of just become these dead men walking. Is that pretty common? Yeah, it's real common. It's, It's very common. So, because otherwise you'll become paralyzed by fear. So, and I remember the first time, like they started shelling the base, you know, and I was like, oh gosh, you know, and, and I saw what happened when dudes just, when the fear took them too much. Um, But, you know, uh, on December 10th, like 2003, like right after the Ramadan uh, offensive that, that went on during that year in November, uh, we had a complex attack hit our base and I was on a small Ford operating base, which had maybe like. 200 to 300 soldiers on it max in the shape of a triangle and you know we're living in these like gp medium tents which are just you know uh that vinyl tents you see that we yeah. put up in the military and it's freezing i'm at seven thousand feet in elevation <clears throat> so it's you know you're fighting in the mountains we use pot belly stoves for warmth with like JP eight jet fuel to keep them warm. <laughs> and you wonder why I have asthma and stuff now and I'm coughing. There you go. Um, you, you know, you're, we're burning our own trash. We're burning our own feces. Like, I mean, it's, it's obscure living and mm. it's, you know, you, and we got attacked just boatloads. Uh, and that day, man, like, um, I was supposed to rally with, uh, a couple of the Intel guys and gather up like the locals that were on base. And some of them had asked to leave early and we knew like kind of something was up. And then, um, I was getting them all into that point and then I just didn't make it, man. We did me and my buddy, uh, Steve, we just didn't make it in time and, uh, into like this kind of fortified position. Cause they were targeting our bunkers cause, uh, they had the positions, and so we, we went into like where our dining hall was and got in between, we put everybody in between like these two walls where like, uh, the cooks would cook and just, this just one was, yeah, you didn't, you didn't, I mean, they were shooting at you. They, they were launching artillery, like rockets in. Whoa. So, yeah. So, and like shelling's really terrifying because like <laughs> bullets are like clean and, and surgical and they just go through but like shrapnel just tears your body to shreds and it's, and you never know where it's going to land and you don't know how big necessarily the blast impact is going to be. Cause you know, you'll hear the pieces that will go past you. Like, and I was only like seven feet away and it, the concussion from the blast, cause they were packing 107 millimeter rockets with C4. So it, it made them wildly inaccurate, but they had a spotter who was like helping walk them in and adjust. And it just, me and my buddy just got taken out. And so like, I woke up, I like had gone head first in a wall. My wrist is shattered. I don't even know I'm hurt. Like there's shrapnel on my lower back. I can't find my buddy. I figure he's vaporized at this point. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm just like, 
I'm like, Steve, where are you? I'm like, you know, I'm screaming and like these Afghans are terrified and I'm like waving them off. They're trying to help me stand up. And I'm, I see this door has been blown off the hinges and it shot him into this room where like all these tables are. And it looks like a toddler's thrown a tantrum everywhere. And there's just like a blood smear leading to the corner. It looks like the walking dead where like one of the undead is dragged himself. And Steve's over in the corner, rocking back and forth, like holding his arm. And I'm like, Oh no. And like, I can't hear anything. Cause like my like hearing's gone. It just sounds like, and I sound like I'm, I feel like I'm underwater, like just, and I had a traumatic brain injury too. Cause I went head first in that wall. So everything's like super slow and slurry and weird. And I'm like yelling and it's just like, you know, is all I can hear. And he's like yelling and, you know, finally I pull out my dagger and I open his sleeve and just blood pours out everywhere. And I, he had taken shrapnel through his tricep and looked like a pop can and it exploded in his tricep. So there's just fat and tissue and everything and blood pouring out. And I'm like, oh no, he's, he's going to die. Like we have hit some arteries. This is bad. Um, and luckily the military is great about muscle memory, man. It all kicked in muscle memory kicked in. And I was like, we got to get this guy patched up. And this other soldier comes in and helps me get him. And we're like dragging him to safety. Just everything's exploding around us still and get him in the hallway. We start bandaging him up and I'm like, we got to get the medics, you know, and we're screaming. It's like, it's pandemonium. Like just, you know, everyone's yelling at everyone, even though we don't have to. And I run out the back door and they'd set up triage in, in the gym, but they had just constructed this concrete wall. Um, so I couldn't get to it. And I'm like pounding on the thing. And that's, that's when the fear took me. And I was like, we're going to die. He's going to die. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, trying to choke down sobs a little bit. And I'm just like, Hey, Hey, we've got, we've got wounded, you know, like, and so I'm like, nobody hears me. So I, I run back. Another rocket comes slamming and knocks me to the ground. I burst through the door and I'm like, they've blocked access to triage. Where the hell do we go? And, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm freaking out at this point and I'm scared. I'm really scared. Yeah. Uh, and I start patching up Steve again and I look over at the other guy and I'm like, it's your turn to get blown up. You got to go. <laughs> You know, he like kind of shuffles and thinks about it for a second. And then he runs out the front door where we got blown up uh, <laughs> and he gets the medics. And like, at this point, I'm starting to go in and out of lucidity too, because I'm injured and I don't really know it. And so like, there's, there's very much just giant holes and gaps, but apparently what, what ended up happening is we patched him up. I helped, you know, the medics, like they, even they couldn't start an IV. They were so rattled, like their hands just kept shaking. And the Air Force called in a, a B-1B Lancer, to, which is a stealth jet, to come in. And, uh, and that's what effectively ended the attack. And, uh, and then I guess we got Steve on a stretcher. And I don't remember this. Like, at this point, I'm, like, blacked out, you know, but my body's still moving. So we're, like, you know, it's like those scenes. We got him on a stretcher, and we're, like, running to the helicopter landing zone. And, uh, and then we get him on a bird. So medevac lands and just gets him the hell out of there. Uh, so Steve survived just so everybody knows. Um, and, and I am just standing there and my team sergeant finds me standing there, like clutching his rifle to my chest and I'm just covered in blood, you know, mine and his and others. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm just like, standing there. And then, you know, he starts talking to me. He's like looking at me, you know, moving my head. 
and I'm like swaying from side to side. I have like word salad too, which is very common with that, you know, where your words just get jumbled. And uh, I was talking about like violins and, and weird stuff. <laughs> and um, they're like, Oh, okay. We got, it. and then my hand like started to swell like really bad. And so they tried to call in another medevac and they're like, man, there are sandstorms right now. We can't get them out. So I was, I was stuck on base for like three days with just like a broken wrist and concussion. And they're like, your, your tour of duty is over, man. And uh, I ended up staying there. But um, the point to all of this was, is like enduring that um, and seeing like the human condition and then drone strikes and all that stuff. I was like, man, we are, we love to talk about how like we're so much more enlightened than our predecessors. And like, that's such a smug and arrogant attitude to take. That's why I laugh at like a lot of us who are like, we should be more advanced now and we should care for people. And I'm like, really? Like, do you, have you seen what we've built with technology? Like we can literally wipe entire cities off the map with atomic bombs. And like, if I'm, you know, a drone pilot, I can sit in the Connex box in Nevada and like literally just, go commit mass genocide. If I wanted to, like we can, we can genocide more easily than ever now. And case in point, look at Syria. Um, Mm -hmm. And so technology is bringing about greater human suffering. Uh, And we're like, Oh, we're so much more enlightened. I'm like, (laughs) says who? So that created a real existential dilemma for me. Cause I was like, okay, what's the point of the human existence? Uh, Mm. Because we seem really good at killing each other. And that, that like really messed me up. And so when you get to that point, you kind of just embrace that, like nothing you do really matters. So it's like, it doesn't matter who you hurt, doesn't matter what you do. Cause if like, we're just as a species all going to die out in 3 billion years with the entropic heat death of the universe. And like love is nothing more than a chemical reaction in my brain to advance the species. Why does anything we do matter? And like, I, you know, I was reading like Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre and they're absurdist. And I was just like, and I liked what they had to say, but I was like, so what's to stop me from doing like the most evil things? I, you know, why, if nothing matters, can nobody's going to remember me in a hundred years. So that, that kind of dilemma just messed me up and I came home and I really struggled reintegrating into society. Um, and so it was very angry and I embraced that uh, side of masculinity that, that was very angry, hyper violent, hyper vigilant, because that's, that's what I knew got me through, Afghanistan and caused me to survive. And so when I looked at that environment, uh, that's how I knew how to survive. And they don't teach you how to turn the off switch when you get home. So I, I really struggled with what I had seen and what I had done. And I, you know, I tried going back to school and I was just like drinking all the time. I'm like, you know, threatening people. I'm like trying to get in fights nonstop, just beat the shit out of everyone because I, it's just, it felt like I had something to prove and like nobody would fight me either because they're like, Joe, this dude went to Afghanistan. He got injured. He's like, he's crazy, you know? And, and like, that's the thing. People don't realize it. Um, when people get in fights, oftentimes, like, you know, the dudes who've been in fights or have seen like, the worst parts. And it's, in, it's like in their eyes and their demeanor and they're not afraid and they're scary. They are scary, scary people. And, and I've, you know, I know some of these dudes like where even for me as a combat vet, I was like, that dude scares me, you know, because he's so dangerous. Um, and if he gets in that mindset, you know, he could easily just 
take me out, but you know, the average college kid is just like, yo, I'd like girls and parties. And then you have a dude come up to, and they start talking trash thinking they're going to be the tough guy. And then you have me front to them. It's like, I will kill you and rip out your jugular. And I will have no problems doing that. And they're just like, Oh, nope, forget it. This guy's crazy. And he means it. So, um, so very toxic aspect of me during that time period. So I, I embraced that side. Um, and it, eventually it got so bad that like I kicked in like my girlfriend's door, threatened everybody there. My parents show up the next day <clears throat> and uh, you know, my, they hold an intervention with like me and my roommates and I go to counseling and it, it was great. Counseling was like the greatest thing for me. I did it specifically for like post-traumatic stress and, and just tried to, you know, figure out who I was again, but I, I continued to lack this like identity and I did, I just didn't know who I was anymore. I was like, am I the college kid? Am I the warrior? You know, am I, and I was taking art classes too. Uh, Cause I want to do graphic design. Cause I, I was like, I'm good at this stuff, you know? And, uh, and I'm like, I don't know how any of this meshes. I don't know who I am. And I, and at one point I hit like this crossroads. I was like, mom, should I just do like business or something? And, you know, go to the like CIA or whatever. She's like, no, she's like, you got to do what you feel you got to do. And um, because I didn't know who I was, what I knew and what I knew I was good at gave me mission and purpose and meaning was war. So in like early 2006, my old team sergeant who was in Afghanistan with was like, yo, man, it's like, we're putting together a special team and uh, we're going to go to Iraq. And I was like, I was like, man, Afghanistan really messed me up. I was like, I was like, plus I had just gotten married at the time too. I'd married my like college sweetheart who would stuck beside me through Afghanistan and like coming home and being crazy. Um, and he just, he kind of pinned me up against the wall and he was like, look, man, wars are not ending anytime soon. You're going to go sooner or later. He's like, if you want to go with a bunch of turds and get yourself killed, He's like, by all means, he said, or you can handpick your team and come with me and the rest of the dudes, you know, from Afghanistan. And he's like, who'd been tested in the fires of combat. And I was like, it's a good argument. And I was like, all right. So I volunteered to go like an idiot <laughs> uh, and, 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 and didn't tell my wife. I was like, Hey, I just got deployed again. Sorry. You know, kind of thing. Didn't tell her I volunteered for this mm. hand selected my team, get this four man team. And, and at this point, you know, I'm a, a senior non-commissioned officer. I'm a, a staff sergeant. <clears throat> and we end up going to Ramadi, Iraq, which is the yeah. most violent city on planet earth from 2006 to 2007. It's like, I mean, it made people talk about Fallujah a lot, but not anymore um, because all of it's coming out now. Um, But Ramadi was where like after the fall of Fallujah and even in tandem with what happened, Operation Phantom Fury and Fallujah, um, there was a, a battle in Ramadi. And then from 2006 to 2007, the battle of Ramadi kicked off, which is a year long. And that's where Chris Kyle got his nickname, the devil, because it was just a turkey shoot out there you just kill everybody like the rules of engagement were insane it's like oh dude peeked around the corner twice you can totally shoot him because he's spying on your position um this dude has a cell phone in his hand shoot him uh this dude has a shovel uh shoot him like it was just literally like the the liberties were so lax because it was so violent mm-hmm. that it, and so everyone's like how did chris kyle get those impressive numbers? i was like dude i was literally with a guy who had 56 confirmed kills and he like doesn't have a book deal or anything uh i mean it was just it was nuts 
Um, so, uh, and then Jocko Willink, you know, who, who does, you know, extreme ownership hit task force bruiser was there. And like my guys down at camp yeah. regular worked with them. And like, we worked with the seals and Rangers while we were there. And it was just, I mean, it was, I was just a nutty, nutty, nutty environment there. We yeah. called it the meat grinder. Yeah. So, I was, I was reading, for, um, I was reading Jocko Willink's uh, sequel, uh, his second book, um, Dichotomy of Leadership. And he goes a lot more into some of the battles of Ramadi. And it, I was constantly thinking about you because I've heard some of your stories. I'm like, oh man, I wonder if Ben was right there, or probably knew about oh, it or knew people yeah. out there. Like, it's just crazy. Dude, it is nuts. Like, um, so it, I mean, just lots of firefights, lots of battles, lots of clearing operations. And then the city got pacified towards the end of our tour, which was nice. You know, it was like, oh, everything calmed down. And we became like the shining example of like what it should be. And I'm, I'm really proud of that work that we did. And we, we really had to go around a lot of the leadership because they didn't want to restore power, water, sewage, electricity, because they couldn't get it done in the year long time period, because you know, they were going to leave before all that got done, but we were able to get a lot of that stuff going and the shooting stopped, you know, Hmm. I mean, I'd be pissed too. If suddenly my house didn't have electricity and water and sewage. Yeah. And there's an occupying force here. Of course I'm going to go shoot at you. Yeah. 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 So, and, but they were like, we should build soccer fields. Then I'll stop shooting at us. And I'm like, you guys are the stupidest people I've ever met. Please let me do my job. And these are like colonels and generals. And yeah. Um, anyways, it, most of the stuff's in the book where I talk about that. They like literally painted the Iraqi water tower, like a soccer ball, as opposed to fixing it. So we would have water um, just dumb, dumb taxpayer, like wasting and abuse, spending of dollars. So anyway, um, three months Prior to coming home, my wife leaves and she's like, I'm out. Uh, hmm. And I'm just like devastated, you know, and and looking back in hindsight, I was always gone. I was always at war. I was always, you know, in training too, even during that break between Afghanistan and Iraq. And like out of the four years we we're together from dating and marriage, like I was only home for like a year and some change. And so we, we never even had time to have a relationship. And I made it all about me. And, you know, there, there, in every divorce, there is a, uh, both sides are culpable, you know, does it suck that she left wasn't like literally in Iraq? Yeah, of course that sucks real hard. And so that just made me crumble. And luckily my team came around me, but I met a priest, uh, who just really poured into me. Uh, his name is father Rochford and, uh, just an incredible dude who really kind of Help me just begin exploring the spiritual side and existential questions that I had in war and whatnot. And he was a Vietnam vet and he was also a purple heart recipient. Hmm. And, um, he'd survived. He was one of six dudes in his platoon to survive the Tet offensive. And he, I was like, man, how'd you become a priest? He was like, I told God, if he would get me out of that, that I'd give my life in service of him. <laughs> I was like, I was like, and now you're back in Iraq. You know, yeah. I was like, you know, you're in Iraq. Um, Sadly, he died by suicide. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's a, a big problem that the chaplains have um, just because they carry everybody else's burdens, but nobody carries theirs. And so he was a lifelong alcoholic. He drank because of the worst. And uh, one day, you know, when I got home from Iraq and had been remarried, you know, I called his parish and I was like, man, I just, I need to say thank you and how instrumental and found out he had jumped off a bridge to his death. So 
So that, that was really hard. Um, especially, you know, when, when suicide is such a, a problem among veterans and that's, that's a little bit skipping ahead, but, um, uh, he, he really kind of painted a a way forward for me. And, um, you know, by the time we left Ramadi, my four man team had five bronze stars between us. Uh, and two of them carried valor devices, um, for, for heroism and combat. Uh, Mm. so like two of my guys were involved in this epic shootout, and, uh, and that story's in the book as, as long as like what I was doing at the same time. So, but, um, I came home and, you know, I don't have a wife. I don't have anywhere to live. Um, she'd been in Houston, which was where her family was at the time. And, uh, and I just, you know, I, I spiraled, you know, into depression and, and substance abuse and just, you know, not knowing what to do with my life or who I am. And, you know, I'm still in and trying to figure all this stuff out. And my, uh, one of my best friends from college, uh, calls me and he's like, dude, I've been trying to get a hold of you. Cause you turn off your phone right over there and dig it back, turn it on. And he's like, man, I heard about what happened. I'm so sorry. Like, please come stay with me in Austin, Texas. And he's like, what are you doing right now? I was like, I'm in a big empty house and I don't have a car. I had to rent one. <laughs> and he was like, please do not stay there. Cause she wouldn't pick me up from the airport. You know? Um, yeah. oh, and wow. so I drive, I drive to Austin and, you know, I'm live on this couch, uh, cause I've, I've got nowhere to go. And, uh, I just, I get worse. And one day he just like, he's like, Hey man, can I take you to church? And it, I was like, why? Cause like he was an atheist and I was like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, so we go, he's like, I don't know, you know, maybe you could use some direction there. Maybe you can meet a nice Christian girl with some morals. I was like, Oh yeah, that's what I need after a divorce, you know? Um, and I'm still reeling with like combat and everything. And what have I done? And Oh my God, you know, yeah. who am I? And, um, so I ended up going and I go to gateway, which is where we met, you know, and I meet this dude, Josh Reebok, and he's leading this event called crave, which is like church at a downtown bar. And I was like, oh man, this sounds super cool, but I don't know. And I go and it's like at this place called the karma lounge and it's like crushed velvet everywhere. There's like a human fish tank. And I'm like, if they start baptizing people in that, I'm like totally out. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> his, his talk like really struck home. You know, he talked about how his parents were hoarders um, about, you know, his own loss of identity and growing up in these environments where, and then, you know, his parents died back to back within rapid succession, dad's a lifelong alcoholic, um, you know, him and his mom are hoarders. Like he's embarrassed of like who he is growing up um, doesn't have friends over, and what's funny is so much of his story about, you know, him not knowing who he was really struck home with me in so many ways. And so I, I just knew that I had to talk to him and that, and so I did, and that started a friendship and Josh is really who I credit him and another guy named Andy for showing me that, that you, you can be who you're destined to be. And, but you need to, like deal with the crap from the past too. Mm. Um, and that really, and they were both like creative artists who really embraced that sensitive side of them, but they were also like really strong manly guys. And I was like, 
this is weird. Um, and so as they were I strong, hung, they were strong and sensitive. Yeah. Strong and sensitive. And I was like, how do you do that? Cause I was like, I am just the angry guy, <laughs> you know? Um, and man, just through their influence. And, and that's why, you know, I talk a lot about the fatherlessness in, in the United States is, um, they were, they fathered me, you know, effectively, uh, and showed me like, these things are okay. And then these, these character flaws, these vices, you need to put that away. Cause like, there's, there's nothing beneficial about that. And like that, that for me, what really began was where I began to just embrace all of me. You know, mm. I was like, I am this warrior. I'm also this creative. I also really love people. Um, and I, I don't want to be defined by my past, but I want to be able to use my past to impact other people's future and take, and you know, it, it's the truth. Like out of our deepest wounds often comes our greatest healing. Mm. And, and that's how we, that's how we heal others. Uh, and that's, that's really for me where that, that, that whole journey through that just shaped so much of what I believed about manhood. And I was like, man, like we promote so much vice to the American male. And it's just like, it's, it's like date around forever, never like settled down and know like what love commitment and discipline is. We love discipline in the military. We do not love discipline in relationships. Mm-hmm. And that sucks, dude. It's hard. Like anyone who says relationships aren't hard is just dumb. Um, because you're talking about two people that have totally separate and different ideologies trying to work together to, to create, you know, family too. And then having those differing of opinions and ideas trickle down to your children. <laughs> yeah. That's a mess. And, and hope you don't mess them up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you totally are along the way. Like make no mistake about yeah. it. You're going to do something wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But ultimately that's where uh, I begin to embrace all of me. And I go, I, and like, that's the thing people forget about human beings. You are more than just your intellectual, uh, you, know, you know, or your emotional side or your emotional and physical side. You, you have moral you have existential, you have spiritual, you have physical, you have emotional, there, there's all yeah. these things going to the human being. And yet we try and tone it down to like one thing that is, is affecting us. Like, yeah. Oh, your emotions are out of whack. You need to regulate those or whatever, take this pill, you know? And I'm just like, dude, we're, we're just like misdiagnosing men left and right. And instead of letting them be whole men, we create technically a whole in our men. Mm. Um, and, and that's, that was the thing for me as like, man, what does it look like for me to be wholehearted and fully embrace the good and the bad within me and then know where the vices are, but know where the virtues are. And that's, that's really, that was that journey for me and ultimately pushed me in that direction to where I could do those things. And I've got so many questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I want to touch on real quick. Cause I, I want to be respectful of, of your time too, but you jumped in. I, I've, I've watched you do several things that what I love about you is you've been on this journey and you've been figuring this out. Like you said, you've taken your deepest wounds and turned them into other people's next step. Like you've helped people mm-hmm. along the way. So some of those things you've done, you started a nonprofit 
called uh, Heart Support. I didn't start it, but I helped build it from the fact I was like, you know, like start founders. Yeah. That started like yeah. the founders actually Jake Lewis. He's the lead singer of August Burns Red. Uh, they're a, a medical band. They're like one of my favorite bands. Still one of my great, great dudes that, that I love. So, yeah. and they're doing cool stuff. Well, I think that's been a big part of your work that I've watched you do over the last several years. And then you're kind of launching into this whole nother mm-hmm. um, work that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, when I got, you know, when I came home, we were all struggling, like due to my unit, but I would say the vast majority were, there were other guys who they didn't, that didn't have problems. Um, but I just looked at the, all of us as a whole coming home to an environment and like, you got to imagine just how weird it is. It's like one day shoot, people are shooting at you the next day you're back and it's like pumpkin spices and everyone's like, Oh, pumpkin spice. And like, they don't give a rip about like what's going on overseas. And you're just like, Oh God, oh, it's just total culture shock. And then you don't know your mission, purpose or identity anymore. And the most interesting thing that I think that I've discovered is there's a 2012 study by Gibbons and colleagues. Um, And it basically shows that veterans, whether they're combat veterans or not, when they get out and they do not find a new purpose or mission or unit to identify with, whether that be like, you know, a church or or anything, um, they will struggle the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so all of us were coming home to this environment where we didn't know who we are and, and, you know, make sense of what we've done. Nobody seemed to care to, because like, you know, we're in like year, what, 11 billion of the Iraq and Afghan wars. Yeah. And uh, everyone's going on living their lives and nothing's disrupted their comfort. And you feel so alone, so utterly alone. And so it, everybody just started killing themselves in mass. And I was like, we've got a severe mental health issue you know, here. And I knew because of what I had struggled with, with post-traumatic stress and moral injury and everything that I'd seen, everything that I'd done. Um, I wanted a way to get back. And so I was like, man, I'll, you know, this guy whose band I listened to and, you know, overseas and uh, metal's part of my life and all of that. And uh, I was like, man, he's sort of really cool you know, nonprofit, maybe I can volunteer there. And so I began volunteering and then he found out like I do graphic design and web development. And like, I also wrote, wrote an article for them that did really well. And uh, he was like, Hey man, you know, why don't you come and uh, do more with the organization? I was like, okay. And then one day he was like, he's like, Hey man, how about you quit your job? And I had this awesome corporate career and geopolitical intelligence and it was super swanky. I was making a lot of money. And it was fun. Um, and he was like, I was like, dude, I've seen the finances. I help run them. Like, it's like you and me that are running this, this ship. Uh, there's no way. And he's like, well, why don't you like fundraise your salary? You know, like a missionary. He's like, just pray about it. And so we did. And it was very clear. So I took like close to like a 70% pay cut and <laughs> went to work. Building this thing from the ground up with them and getting yeah. on Vans warp Tour. And really... The whole thing was to just let people be broken exactly where they're at and then take proactive steps in their journey towards holding and, uh, healing and wholeness, mm. you know? Um, 
because the, the modern mantra of mental health is so stupid. And yes, I said, it's so stupid. And I will stand by that. It's like the you're enough. And like, you know, it's okay that you're not okay. And it's just like, it leaves people stuck. Cause like, there's no action step. And I'm like, yeah, it's okay to not be okay. Like, let's not stay that way. Like what we said at gateway, you know? Um, and that's, that's really, we, we wanted that holistic healing for people. And just, so we just begin to write resources form everything from, you know, self-harm to depression, to anxiety, and just take proactive next steps. And we ended up getting recognized as like one of the top 100 nonprofits in the world for like social innovation at the classy awards in like 2017 and 2016, mm-hmm. we won uh, like nonprofit of the year at the classy or not at the alternative press music awards. So it was, it was really life-giving in so many ways, but, uh, and, and I like that, but I think I, if I'm honest, I did that because there was this deep wound of seeing my brothers and sisters struggle. Mm. And really I wanted to focus in on them, but I just didn't know how to do that. Cause you get labeled like kind of the sissy pansy when you talk about like mental health in the military, it's kind of an oxymoron. Um, and, you know, with time, I just, I kind of got over that and, and realized like, um, you know, I need to kind of step more into that fray. And I had this book from within and had started writing on medium about my experiences just cause I couldn't, I couldn't really talk about a lot of them and I still can't. That's why I glossed over so much as far as like everything, but I, I found I could get them down on paper. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I wrote a couple articles, they went viral, um, and then, you know, medium and a lot of the, my readers just encouraged me as far as like the book stuff, literary agents started courting me. And so I signed with one who actually launched Marie Kondo's career. So it's kind of funny because I'm like Marie Kondo and then war. <laughs> so, you know, a simple art of tidying up and blowing people up. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we, uh, so signed with her and then put together book proposal and stuff and then mm. started pitching it, dealt with a lot of reg- from that, which was awesome. Uh, and then eventually had two places that, uh, wanted to sign and, and I went with kind of one of the more major publishing houses that did and, uh, they've loved it. And that book drops and it's just the journey. And so much of what we've kind of talked about, uh, today on July 5th of Mm -hmm. this year. Um, and so I just, you know, Jake realized like, I was doing other things now, my writing and content creation and creativity, And just, you know, desire to work more and do keynotes for, you know, veterans and organizations and all of that um, was kind of taking more of the focal point. And I just, to be honest, I wasn't happy anymore at the job, even though I had been there for 10 years. And a lot of that was is the pandemic made me feel like I was an emotional dumping ground for people. And I was like, I got to deal with my own crap now because Afghanistan happened, like the fall in Kabul. And I was like, nothing I did mattered (laughs) and just kind of fell apart. And I was like, I was like, man, this is not a good spot to be in. And, um, and so anyway, uh, yeah. So heart support was just like, I wanted to impact my brothers and sisters, but just in a general, you know, mental health stuff. And it led to, you know, me studying and learning and and getting certifications and and everything in, in that. Um, but now it's kind of like, where am I going now? has more to do with like, and that was, it was a question again. It's like, who is Benjamin Sledge? Is Benjamin Sledge this, you know, mental health dude? Is that what he does? Um, And really I realized, you know, I'm all, I'm that thing, but more. 
Yeah. And so I had to take like that whole person part of me where I was like, I am a veteran, but that's not my full identity. I am a creative, but that's not my full identity. You know, I'm a husband, father, like, and I was like, how do I, you know, impact people in a positive manner through art and speaking and veteran stuff and mental health. And that's really just what I'm doing now. So, well, I love what you're doing, man. Uh, I I told you this the other day on the phone, we were setting this thing up. Like what I love about the wholeness of who you are, the way you come across is um, you are all excited about all things like metal and design and discipline and, and, and whiskey and, and, and you <laughs> yeah, take that yeah, same yeah. ferocity to just loving people. Like I've watched you interact with people who are very fragile mm-hmm. in some ways. And I've watched you in this, I mean, with your huge arms and your tattoos, just with your words, wrap, wrap your arms around them and make them feel like that like same level of intense passion and just kindness and concern for them. So I, I know you, you talked about people coming home and not feeling seen. I've watched you as one of those people, um, both online and your social platforms, but also just knowing you, I've watched you help people feel seen. So, man, I, I appreciate and thank you for what you do. I appreciate that. It's, it's weird. You know, I, I, I think in a lot of ways, I still fight the stigmas. Like I, sometimes I forget, you know, like I'm at a great church here now that I live in Colorado Springs. And part of why I moved to Colorado was for my own well-being. Yeah. Like after I got back from Iraq, I was like, I'm never going to live where it's hot again. I lived in Austin, Texas for 11 years where one summer we had, it wasn't even a summer is extended into like basically yeah. winter a yeah. hundred days over a hundred degrees. I just remember thinking, this is awful. What am I doing here? <laughs> Why do I do this to myself? Yeah. And Emily, my wife and I, we always knew that we wanted to be in Colorado. Like, and my grandfather, after he got home from World War II, this is where he settled. And this is where I have a lot of very fond memories. Grew up, you know, as a a Rockies fan. I remember when they were like from their inception. I literally have like here on my wall, I'm looking at it. It's uh, the opening day in 94 uh, when we went to the opening game, when they played against the Philadelphia Phillies, 94, baby. So I've been a Rockets fan for forever. And, you know, mountains, there's something about it, healing in nature that calls me home. And then Colorado Springs has five different military installations, you know, space force is here now. Um, (laughs) and they're, dude, they're doing some wiki wiki stuff. Those guys are, are interesting. Um, like everyone makes fun of it and it's like so needed. It's, it's, it's a lot of cyber warfare and signal yeah. intelligence and stuff like that. People don't realize how necessary it actually is, but um, you know, I literally live on the footsteps of Fort Carson. I hear revelry every morning, like that, 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 that you know, like, um, and then at night I hear taps, you know, at 10 PM. Mm. So uh, it's, it's been very healing for me in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm around those brothers and sisters again. Yeah. Um, and so I love that. Um, but I'm, you know, coming from the environment of Austin where it's a little bit more, you know, free spirited thinking, um, and I, you know, as the metal guy and, 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 you know, you and I both know, like at our church, we were, there was always, there was fine, you know, it was who I was. And here it's like, it's, it's a lot more conservative, you know, focus on the families up here there, and, um, and just a lot of churches, you know, uh, so it, and, and I love it. And I love that environment. I love all those things, but 
went to church the other day. I forget, you know, I'm like in all black and I'm in a Metallica t-shirt and like there's a giant skull on the front and people are just kind of giving me the sideways long glance. Like, who's this cat? You know? (laughs) So in some ways it's like, I I think I still got to, you know, remember I, I can't change for other people because this is who I am and this is who, you know, God has uniquely wired me to be in so many ways. Um, and if I stifle that again, I know where that leads and it's not a good spot for me. Hmm. You know, I want to be, and it's so funny because like growing up, it was always like, Oh, you know, you listen to metal, you're going to do meth and murder your parents. Like, and you know, satanic panic was like a thing. Um, yeah. Kids don't these days have no idea what it was like. Dude, no idea. Like you listen to metal. You, you were like, they thought you kicked your own dog and like set it on fire and were like, hail Satan, you yeah. know, and like yeah. <laughs> literally. It's- and Metallic is writing like songs about like orthodox biblical stories, which is funny. Like creeping death is one of them. about the angel of death and like what happens uh, to Moses when he goes to Pharaoh. So, and I'm just yeah. like, uh, somehow this one's evil, weird. Um, and anyway, so all of that being said, it's just like, um, I find it so ironic that eventually I went into the metal industry to bring hope and healing to other people. And, mm. and ultimately, you know, talk about my faith. And I was like, in your face church, you know, like, like not like just, Oh, I know what you mean. The silly church, you know, but, yeah. but cause I, I'm a very, very active part of mine, you know, and I, I love that, but it's just funny. People don't, people really, I think get stuck in their mindsets. And it, and I think this is part of the problem I've seen within masculinity is they, they don't know what it's like to reach across the aisle. Um, mm. So you have like all these guys who are, you know, either diehard, you know, liberal or diehard, you know, neocon or whatever. And they don't know what it's like to operate in virtue and reach across the aisle and put away that vice and go, you know what, we may disagree, but we probably have some things in common or human beings. And in, in a lot of ways, I feel like I have to continue to build that bridge. Cause like, there's still that stigma around, you know, like, why is Ben dressing all black? Why does he listen to like stuff that sounds like, you know, Satan? And I'm just like, because it feeds my soul, man. Yeah. <laughs> this is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. There's something yeah. In, in us that's wired that way. And, and mm-hmm. no, I know what you mean. I would love to continue the conversation another time on reaching across the aisle. I want to hear more about that. But if people want to find you online, where should they go to check you out? Uh, I would just say my website is one, you can literally Google my name, like everything pops up. Like, so if you, if you Google Ben sledge or even Benjamin sledge, it's, it's all me. Um, so my books and stuff will pop up. Um, you know, benjaminsledge.com is my website. Uh, medium is where most people find me as far as my writing. Uh, I've got about 40,000 readers that follow me there. Um, and so that's, that's just, yeah, you're, you're going to find me simple as that way. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and the new book, uh, Where Cowards Go to Die, mm-hmm. is coming out this year. Yeah, July 5th, man. It's supposed to come out in March, but COVID. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Supply that's awesome. chain interruptions. So. There you go. Well, you'll, you'll be having a nice cigar on July 5th. Dude, for real. I'm going to be like, well, I'll probably do an interview that day, honestly. So. <laughs> Hold on. But, <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't. So that's the thing. I've had to give up cigars. And I have asthma oh. now because of the burn pits in, in Afghanistan and stuff. Oh. So, well, yeah. for people it, who can't see, you're wearing a shirt that says Jesus Christ, whiskey, tobacco, and heavy metal. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> it, what's funny is it's like I'm like, I'm like, the priority is up at the top, obviously. Yeah. And I love good bourbon whiskey. But um, yeah, heavy metal's my life. <laughs> heavy metal should go right under like the Jesus part. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, I love it, man. Hey, I've loved the conversation and um, I want to do a part two sometime. For After sure, man. I've out. got lots to say, of course, but yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Yeah. All we right, man. One. Well, like I said at the beginning of the show, Ben's story is one that is absolutely incredible uh, and would blow you away. Uh, and I hope that was true for you as you listen to his story. And I also hope that you saw some of yourself in his story or somebody that you knew in his story. I asked Ben after the interview, what would he recommend for veterans who are struggling with depression, PTSD, and just finding a new purpose? And he recommended a program called Heroes and Horses. You can check them out. They help soldiers and veterans redefine their purpose, rediscover their strength, and maximize their potential by uh, essentially retooling what they learned in the military uh, for the next season of their life. You can check them out at heroesandhorses.org. I highly recommend that. And I'm really excited to have Ben back on. If I know anything about being an author, releasing a book changes you. And um, just an incredible guy when it comes to somebody who can reach across the aisle. He is a somebody who really does kind of uh, passionately wrap his arms around people. And so I'm excited to hear what this book is going to do in his life and what that's going to look like as he continues to work with veterans and people uh, who need help. So, and hey, I am so excited you've been here for this episode of the Mankind Podcast. My name is Justin J. Girdler, and I just want to encourage you uh, this week to choose kindness because when we choose kindness, we can actually change someone's world. 